Few things are better than that perfect summer evening. As the sun heads for the horizon, the heat of the day starts to release its hold, crickets start to sing their twilight songs, and fireflies appear almost like magic to flash and blink to each other. It's hard not to feel a sense of peace and calm on a perfect summer evening. So in honor of the beginning of summer, let's talk about those two iconic insects that make summer nights so magical, crickets and fireflies. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. One of the most iconic sounds of summer nights is the singing of crickets. Now, crickets are primarily nocturnal, so it's not until the day starts to wind down and little by little the world gets a little bit quieter that we start to notice the singing of the crickets. It also happens to be the iconic sound that follows most of my dad jokes. I'll get back to their singing in a minute, but first, let's talk a little bit about crickets in general. There's roughly 2,400 species of cricket worldwide. They're distributed all around the globe between 55 degrees north and 55 degrees south latitudes. Here in the Western Hemisphere, that means from about central Canada in the north all the way south through South America, with the greatest diversity, perhaps unsurprisingly, in the tropics. They're found in a variety of habitats from grasslands, bushes, and forests to marshes, beaches, and even caves. Now, crickets generally are omnivores. They eat plant material like flowers, fruit, leaves, and grass, but they also eat insects like aphids, insect eggs, and insect larvae, and they'll scavenge decaying plant material. Crickets belong to the order Orthoptera, which includes grasshoppers, locusts, and katydids. While they all share common characteristics, katydids are the most closely related to crickets. In addition to being nocturnal and omnivorous, both have long antennae and long ovipositors, the tubular organ they use to deposit eggs, and use a similar method to sing. Crickets generally have cylindrically shaped bodies, which end in cerci, spelled C-E-R-C-I, which, for lack of a better description, I'm just going to call butt antenna, because... Well, it's not only what they look like, it's essentially what they are. In crickets, cerci are sensory organs covered in somewhere around 750 tiny sensory hairs. These hairs can detect airflow, vibrations, sounds, scents, mates, and collect other information to help the cricket evaluate its surroundings. They can even detect ultra-low frequency sound beyond the range of human hearing, which helps the cricket detect and therefore evade predators. Have you ever heard a cricket singing and walk towards it, only to have it stop singing long before you get close? That's because, thanks to its cerci, it sensed you coming. Interestingly, higher frequency sounds like the singing of other crickets and even the ultrasonic echolocation used by bats is detected by a separate hearing organ, the tympanal organ, which is located, you guessed it, on their lower front legs. Okay, yeah, you probably didn't guess it, but just imagine if your ears were located in the middle of your shins. 
Like other members of Orthoptera, crickets have enlarged femurs, which makes them excellent jumpers. And also like many of their cousins, some have wings and can fly, although it's not as simple as wings versus no wings. There are wingless species, which, as we'll get into, also makes them chirpless. But cricket species span the spectrum of wings and flying ability. There are species with small forewings and no hindwings, and then there are those with hindwings larger than their forewings. These are the ones that have the ability to fly. Generally, the forewings have evolved into tough, leathery elytra, the covering of a beetle's wings, while the hindwings are membranous and folded when not in use for flight. What's really interesting, though, is that some crickets only use their wings to disperse, after which they either shed their wings, leaving only wing stumps, or in some species, the wings are pulled off and eaten by the cricket itself or by another cricket, most likely getting a nutritional boost. The sand cricket, found in the southeastern United States, displays what's called wing polymorphism. Some individuals have fully functional, long hind wings, and others have short wings and can't fly, but this is a trade-off. Short-winged females have smaller flight muscles, but they have greater ovarian development and therefore produce more eggs. So this difference adapts the cricket to either be good at dispersing or good at reproduction. In some long-winged individuals, the flight muscles will deteriorate during adulthood, and the cricket's reproductive capabilities will improve. All right, since we're on the topic of reproduction, let's talk about that iconic chirping. The chirping of a cricket is not a vocalization. It's made by what is called stridulation, which is a fancy way of saying rubbing two body parts together. More like playing a violin than singing. Male crickets have a vein at the base of their forewing that acts like a file or a scraper. Think about a violin bow. To chirp, he pulls this ridged vein against the upper surface of the opposite wing, causing a vibration that is amplified by the thin membrane of the wing. Most female crickets don't chirp, and since wings are required, this is why wingless species are also silent. Now, crickets produce a variety of song, and each one has its own purpose. First, and maybe foremost, male crickets call to attract a mate. A male's calling song invites receptive females to come closer. Then he serenades his lady with a courtship song. If she accepts him as a mate, he may chirp a different tune to announce their new relationship. This song serves to reinforce the mating bond and encourage the female to lay eggs rather than find another male and mate again. Male crickets also chirp to defend their territories from competitors. An aggressive song is triggered if the presence of another male cricket is detected. Each species of cricket has a signature call, unique in volume, rate, and pitch, although air temperature also factors into the rate of chirping. Generally speaking, the higher the temperature, the faster the chirp. Now, it sounds like an old wives' tale, but you can calculate a close approximation of the temperature by counting the rate of a cricket's chirp, as long as you know what type of cricket you're hearing and the proper formula. The relationship between temperature and the rate of chirping is known as Dolbear's Law. For example, according to Dolbear's Law, counting the number of chirps produced in 14 seconds by the snowy tree cricket a common cricket in the United States, and adding 40 will approximate the temperature in degrees Fahrenheit. 
Most crickets lay their eggs in the soil or inside the stem of plants using their needle-like ovipositor. It takes about two weeks for the larvae to hatch, and when they do, they're about the size of a fruit fly. Over the next month, they pass through several larval stages, becoming more like an adult cricket with each molt. Once they reach adulthood, they only live about another six weeks, so they don't have time to waste. The life of an adult cricket is all about eating and mating. Now, crickets and their chirping have inspired quite a bit of folklore and mythology, and the things that crickets are associated with are kind of all over the map. In the folklore of Brazil, the chirping of crickets was thought to be a sign of either impending rain or a financial windfall. Not sure how those two things are related. A black cricket in a room was thought to pretend an illness, a gray one money, and a green one hope. In northeastern Brazil, cricket chirping was thought to announce death, so crickets were killed if they chirped in the house. Talk about killing the messenger. In Barbados, however, a loud cricket was thought to mean money was going to come in, so a cricket would not be killed or evicted if it chirped inside the house. However, other, less noisy crickets were thought to forecast illness or death. Guess you really had to know your crickets to know what they meant. Crickets have also featured prominently in several famous works of literature, including the most famous cricket, Jiminy Cricket, of Pinocchio fame. On a side note, the expression Jiminy Crickets is used to express surprise or annoyance. Essentially, it's used as a substitute for saying Jesus Christ for those who consider that to be swearing. In some countries, primarily China and Japan, crickets are considered to be good luck and are kept as pets. Cricket fighting is a traditional Chinese pastime that dates back over a thousand years to the Tang Dynasty. Originally, cricket fighting was an indulgence of emperors, but later it became popular among commoners. For the record, crickets are rarely injured in these fights. Although its popularity is waning, the Association for Cricket Fighting in Beijing still organizes cricket fights and championships. Like racehorses, champion crickets have pedigrees and are carefully bred by knowledgeable keepers, although betting on cricket fights is illegal. A champion cricket can cost upwards of $2,500. Cricket fights are even arranged by weight class, like boxing. Each cricket is kept in its own clay pot and fed a diet that includes ground shrimp, red beans, goat liver, and maggots. Before a fight, female crickets are put into the pot to increase the male's fighting spirit. After being placed in a fighting container with a removable divider, handlers use a stick to stimulate their cricket's antenna, which makes it aggressive. When both crickets are sufficiently agitated, the divider separating the pair is lifted, and the fight begins. The loser is the cricket that first starts to avoid contact, runs away, stops chirping, or is thrown out of the fighting container. In southern Asia, particularly Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam, crickets are a common snack prepared by deep-frying soaked and cleaned insects. This isn't as unusual as you might think. Many people around the world eat insects as part of their regular diet. In Thailand, there are over 20,000 farmers raising crickets for food, with an estimated production of about 7,500 tons per year. And the United Nations has implemented a project in Laos to improve cricket farming as a way of increasing food security in the region. The food conversion efficiency, which is the rate at which an animal converts feed into whatever the desired output is, of house crickets is five times higher than that of beef cattle. 
And if their reproductive rate is taken into account, that jumps to 15 to 20 times higher. Cricket flour can be used as an additive in foods like pasta, bread, crackers, and cookies. It can also be used in protein bars, pet foods, livestock feed, and other industrial uses. According to the UN, the use of insect protein, like cricket flour, could be critical in feeding the growing population of the planet while being less damaging to the environment. Crickets are high in protein and calcium. Every 100 grams of crickets, which is about a half a cup, contains almost 13 grams of protein and 76 milligrams of calcium. That's about one and a half times the protein and 25% as much calcium as a cup of milk. Nutritious and delicious? Well, at least they're gluten-free, right? Okay, moving on. If crickets are the iconic sound of summer evenings, then fireflies, or lightning bugs if you prefer, are the iconic sight, at least of the early summer. In late June or early July, when the crickets start to chirp in the evening, so too do the lightning bugs emerge to silently add their light to the ambiance of dusk. Despite the name firefly, they're not, in fact, flies, but beetles. Like crickets, there's over 2,000 known species. In the U.S. and Canada, there's about 170 species, although they all look very similar. Generally speaking, they're between one-half and three-quarter inch long, with a reddish head and a black spot, and the wings are black with a faint stripe down the middle and at each edge. Of course, the primary identifying characteristic is the light-emitting organ on the underside of the last two or three abdominal segments. Fireflies are found in temperate and tropical regions. You're probably very familiar with adult fireflies. What you may not be familiar with are their larvae. Like all beetles, fireflies have a four-stage life cycle. Egg, larva, pupa, and adult. Eggs are laid in midsummer in the soil or leaf litter. It takes three to four weeks for them to hatch. Firefly larvae look like a cross between a worm and a six-legged armadillo. The top is brown and flattened, with the segments expanded into shield-like plates that protrude slightly to the sides and to the back, overlapping the next segment. The larvae have a light organ similar to those of the adults, so they're sometimes called glowworms. But that said, the name glowworm is not limited to firefly larvae, and there are other non-firefly members of the Lampyridae family that are also referred to as glowworms. Firefly larvae are usually found in moist areas, like under the loose bark of dead trees, under mulch and debris, and in moist, loose soil. Fireflies generally spend anywhere from one to two years as a larva. At night, they hunt slugs, snails, worms, and other insects. When it captures prey, the larva will inject its unfortunate victim with digestive enzymes to immobilize it and liquefy its remains. When ready to pupate, usually in late spring, the firefly larva builds a mud chamber or a cocoon. The pupal stage lasts about one to three weeks. When they emerge as adults, they're ready to start lighting up the night. But at this point, like the crickets, they only have another three to four weeks to live. You can think of those twinkling lights as them going out in little tiny blazes of glory. Those few precious weeks of lighting up are all about mating and laying eggs. Most species of firefly don't even eat as adults. The few species that do feed on pollen and nectar, 
One species, however, the Pennsylvania firefly, will mimic the flashing patterns of other firefly species in order to lure them in and eat them. They're like the Hannibal Lecters of fireflies. So about that light. Like the cricket's chirp, a firefly's light is mainly about attracting a mate. And also like a cricket's chirp, each species of firefly has a distinct pattern and timing of flashing, and may even emerge at a different time of day or fly at a different height. This lets them differentiate between different species. The ones you see flying are usually males. Females of many species don't fly at all. Males fly around searching for females. Some flash only once. Some emit flash trains of up to nine carefully timed pulses. Others fly in a specific pattern, briefly dipping before sharply ascending and forming like a J of light. A few even shake their abdomens from side to side, which makes them appear to be twinkling. Here at Dispatches HQ, I have observed at least three distinct flashing patterns. One species, the vast majority of the ones I see, emerge right around dusk, fly fairly low to the ground, and produce a single fairly slow flash, pausing for a few seconds between each one. Another pattern I've noted is much more rapid and near-continuous flashing, almost like a strobe light. And I've seen one more always later in the evening or very, very early in the morning, usually flying much higher than the other ones. These individuals flash multiple times in quick succession while flying in a straight line before pausing a few seconds and repeating. Typically, the females will sit immobile and only flash back when they see a male with a particularly impressive display. They show their interest by responding with a single flash, timed to follow the male's characteristic flashes in a species-specific manner. Some fireflies, most famously in the southeast of Asia, will synchronize their flashes. In the U.S., this phenomenon can be seen during the first few weeks of June in the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. So, how do they produce that light in the first place? Well, keeping it as simple as possible, it's a chemical process. In the firefly's abdomen, oxygen mixes with an enzyme called luciferase, a pigment called luciferin, magnesium ions, and ATP, which is the stuff that supplies energy at a cellular level. This creates light with very little heat. The process is actually extremely efficient. In fact, it's the most efficient light in the world. Nearly 100% of the energy from this chemical reaction becomes light. The light that fireflies produce can be green, yellow, or even orange in color. Interestingly, this bioluminescence did not evolve as a way of finding mates, but as a way to ward off predators. Light production in the Lampyridae family originated as an honest warning signal that the larvae were distasteful and later evolved into a mating signal in the adults. Now, it does seem counterintuitive. A light-up butt is not exactly a great way to hide from predators. But the blood of the firefly contains a steroid that is distasteful to predators. And not only do fireflies taste nasty, they can actually kill. When a predator attacks, fireflies kick in a process called reflexive bleeding. They shed drops of blood that contain the bitter-tasting steroid, which can actually be poisonous to some vertebrates, including lizards and some birds. 
This type of signaling is really not uncommon in nature. The bright colors of monarchs and viceroy butterflies are a warning to predators that they're toxic and bad tasting. The bright colors of bees and wasps signal that they can inflict pain, and many venomous snakes, like the coral snake, are brightly colored as well. Again, like the cricket, fireflies have featured in human culture around the world for centuries. In Japan, the emergence of fireflies signifies the anticipated changing of the seasons, and firefly viewing is a special pleasure of midsummer, celebrated in parks that exist expressly for that single purpose. In ancient Rome, the naturalist and philosopher Pliny the Elder recommended sowing millet and harvesting barley in the moment that the glowworms, or fireflies, appeared. In Western culture, fireflies have been associated with a variety of things. According to an article published in the journal Advances in Zoology and Botany, author Stefan, and I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Anikin of the Zurich University of Applied Sciences, writes that, quote, The notion of lamprids leads to a vast network of associations, including such distinct and even contradictory significances as childhood, crop, doom, elves, fear, habitat change, idol, love, luck, mortality, prostitution, solstice, stars, and fleetingness of words and cognition, unquote. Wow, that is quite the spectrum. Unfortunately, fireflies appear to be on the decline worldwide. Light pollution, habitat loss, pesticides, and climate change are leading to a decrease in the number of fireflies. Artificial light can disrupt mating displays and interfere with dispersal of larvae. When their habitat is destroyed, fireflies don't relocate. Instead, they just disappear. Pesticides meant for other insects are just as lethal to fireflies and their larvae. And climate change is just making life harder for a lot of our planet species. So what can you do to help conserve fireflies? Well, limiting artificial outdoor lights at night reducing or eliminating pesticides around your yard, and restoring habitats with native plant species are great places to start. And with that, Wild Wanderers, we conclude this first episode of summer. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, feel free to email me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to help support future episodes, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can find all that information at patreon.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.